You are listening to Building the Future, Green Building in the New Millennium, brought to you by SustainableHomesOfTheFuture.com. I'm your host, Ian Sollenberger, and this podcast is for anyone that wants to collaborate and learn more about how to design and construct energy-efficient buildings for an environmentally sustainable future. If you have questions about how to design and build with a lower environmental impact, or you'd like to come on our show as a guest, please email me directly at info at shf, that's Sustainable Homes of the Future, shfbuild.com. Uh, visit our website at shfbuild.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at shfbuild. Our mission with this podcast is to inspire you, our listeners, to go out and be sustainability advocates. Share these ideas so we can truly push this industry forward. We need each and every one of you to help us build the future today. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Building the Future, the podcast where we try to figure out uh, how to improve the built environment one project at a time. Uh, Today, I'm super excited to have with me Michael Strong. He is a senior uh, project manager for Pankow. I might be mispronouncing that, so I'll let him uh, correct me if need be. Um, But a gentleman who's worked in the uh, sustainability, green building, construction development space for uh, the majority of his career. Um, He's done some other fun things as well. I'm sure he'll pepper those in, but um, really excited because Pankow is one of those companies, you know, here in LA, certainly in, in California, that's really uh, your, your motto is thinking beyond the building. Um, and so I kind of kick it off, maybe, is that like Bed Bath & Beyond, like where the beyond is just sort of this <laughs> ethereal thing where, you know, you just put it out there? Or why don't, why don't yeah. you talk a little bit about what thinking beyond the building uh, means for you? Yeah, well, well, that's great. That, boy, I can go a lot of different directions with that, Ian. So <laughs> nice to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm Michael Strong. I'm a senior project manager at Panco Builders, right? I call it Panco, like PepsiCo. Okay. But we don't ever correct anybody because <laughs> probably everybody calls it Panco. I mean, Pancow. I don't know why that is, but that's the way it is. And the firm was actually founded by a gentleman by the name of Charles Panco. Perfect. Uh, obviously, East European heritage. He founded it in the Bay Area. He was a big civil uh, general contractor, and he felt that there's a better way to build than the traditional design, bid, build model. Because you go design, bid, build, VE, bid, VE, one more time, bid, and then you finally hopefully get to build something. Um, But ironically enough, he ultimately ended up relocating to Southern California, down where you're at, Ian. And so our headquarters, even though Charles Panko has since passed, they're in Pasadena. That's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, so we're headquartered just right up the road from you, and I work out of our Northern California office. It's one or the other in San Francisco or in Oakland. And as you can see, for those of you who can't see, neither one of us are in our offices right now, right? <laughs> no, we are working from home today. We are working from home. And uh, so to your first question, thinking beyond the building, yeah, that that's our tagline. So there's a lot of really good general contractors out there. There's a lot of good people at Panco and other general contractors that are really focused on the art and the science of building a building, right? Construct, you know, construction management majors from Cal Poly, right? We hire lots of them. Mm -hmm. Really great general contractors. But what we want 
people at Panco to do is to develop relationships with clients so we think beyond the building, meaning we're not just order takers putting a price tag and a schedule attached to a design. Mm-hmm. We want to be involved in the early stages of that design. We want to bring our construction expertise to the table. We want to do constructability reviews. We want to do different types of schedule analysis, right? We want to bring VE opportunities. We want to bring our best trade partners and suppliers to the table very early on in the conversation so that we can help the client establish what we call as a target value design, right? Why wait till the design is done and then put a price tag to it, right? Shouldn't the design be married to the budget from the beginning so that when the design comes, it comes with the price tag. We already know what it's going to cost before the design is finished because we've all agreed this is where we're going to land this design at this price point. Mm-hmm. So we do try to literally uh, take that phrase to heart, thinking beyond the building, right? Thinking in terms of all those uh, issues that affect the building before it's built. And so you're, you're talking to, you know, whoever the stakeholders are, the clients about, um, you know, not only building use, but, you know, occupancy, um, you know, durability, resilience. I mean, some of these things that, that probably the average homeowner who's worked with an architect before, uh, you know, hasn't really had those conversations about. And those, that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about the overall conversation of sustainability is sort of taking that full context, past, present, and future, um, ultimately future, big time, into consideration uh, so that you're sort of eliminating variables and uh, providing value adds, not just for, hey, this is what it's going to look like once it's built. It's going to be great when we clip the scissors, but, you know, this building's going to be around for X number of years, and we want it to um, have you know, efficient use through that whole time period. Am, am I in the, on the right direction there? No, yeah, you're, you're totally spot on, Ian. Um, whether we're talking about a home, whether we're talking about the renovation of uh, a historic three-story building in the Mission District in San Francisco, right, where we want to repurpose it mm-hmm. to a, a greater use, you know, I've, I've got a project like that going on right now on Valencia Street. For those of you that have been to San Francisco and, you, and you've been south of market, you've You've been on Valencia in the Mission District. You know, it's a really hip, it's like, it's like a Venice. It has a Venice vibe to it, right? Lots of yoga, lots of Pilates, lots of coffee shops, right? <laughs> and we want to repurpose this 100-year-old this building into something new. Very cool. Or, or whether we're building a new ground-up hotel, right? Our impact on that building as the general contractor who's partnering with the architect it's for a very finite period of time, right? We're going to come in and we're going to do a, a year's worth of pre-construction planning and design and budgeting and scheduling and permitting. And then we're going to do the renovation or the new ground up construction, will, which will last for another 12 or 24 months, maybe something large longer than that. And those costs that, you know, that cost spike, right? Right at the beginning. This the is what soft cost. cost. Yeah, the, yeah. It's going to cost you $2 million or it's going to cost you $5 million or $15 million for the project. And then we go away and then somebody is stuck with the lifetime costs moving out from there, which is exactly what you spoke to, right? What's it going to cost to continue to operate the structure over hmm. the course of its intended life? So 
you know, another project that we're working on with the city of San Francisco, uh, they asked us for a particular type of building. I can't go into the details on it right now, but it, it had a 20 year lifespan to it. They said, we want a 20 year building, which probably to any of your listeners, That's even you are like pretty short, pretty yeah. short. Right. <laughs> and then they asked for the cost. Did they want it to decompose at the end of the 20 years? Cause that'd be, <laughs> no, but I I've did. got another one of those for Google. I can talk about. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> In Golden Gate Park. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, this one wasn't supposed to decompose. It was just supposed to be recycled. Short term. But then they said, hey, what's the cost of it going to be over 40 years? And of course, if you look at the cost delta going from 20 to 40, it shrinks to like nothing. And they were like, well, this is crazy. It's not going to cost us anything more upfront. Mm -hmm. Really hardly anything more to make it that much more durable. And when they spread that just tiny incremental cost out from 20, from year 20 to year 40, they realized this is the way we've got to go, even if we end up tearing the building down after 20 years, because the incremental costs were little, and it would also reduce their operational costs, because they would end up with a sturdier building that required less maintenance and less energy costs, less cost to operate. So it was just made all the sense in the world. That's great. That's great. Um, and, you know, I mentioned at the, at the top that you've been in the industry now for uh, safe to say over 30 years. Yeah. Ish. Um, yeah, I have. Um, what, so there's a two parter here. Um, I, I looked at your, at your LinkedIn profile and so I you, like to say 20 over 20, over 20. Okay, cool. <laughs> I don't know all the timelines. Well, you know just, some people they'll say, you know, I've been doing this 32 years. I stopped counting at 20. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. And and you'll be and you'll be 50 years old forever. So that's that's, that's right. Brilliant. That's yeah. right. Um, that's my my mother-in-law's approach at least. Mm -hmm. She turned 35 and then never counted after that. That's I like that. I love <laughs> your mother-in-law. <laughs> but it was interesting when I looked at your LinkedIn profile that you you have undergraduate and graduate degrees in U.S. government and international relations. So I yeah. I kind of want to know the the brief story, if you would. Um, like I said, two-part question: How did that turn into founding a green building company um, in Houston, Texas? First off, and then secondly, while all that was happening. Just give us a brief overview. What was the sustainability uh, discussion, you know, in the built environment back in in the eighties and nineties? I mean, what did it what did it look like back then? What were the big differences? Wow. Yeah, I wish I, I, I wish it was a little later in the day and we had a cold beer because that second <laughs> question is, you know, it's just, you know, it's 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 a really great question so I'll, but i'll answer the former first right how, sure. how did i go from a us government and a masters and an mba to to building buildings and renovating buildings um you know just very briefly uh three sisters and a brother and we grew up very middle class right we we weren't starved we, you know my parents did they did nicely we weren't upper class we were just you know we lived in a really nice house in the suburbs and went to public schools uh, so we did nice enough to have nice vacations uh, and to go camping and things like that. But my folks made it very clear very early on. They, they didn't have the financial wherewithal to put five kids through college. And we were always raised uh, when we go to college, blah, 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 blah. It was never if we go to college, blah, 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 blah. Right. So they kind of planted that seed like this is what one does. Mm -hmm. uh, and I love that that's being questioned today, by the way, because I, I really think uh, there's 
a place for a lot of people, especially women in trade schools. But that's a different podcast at another time. <laughs> so I had to put Still myself Still sustainability in at the end of the day, interestingly enough. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, hopefully. Um, so I, I was originally intending to get into the State Department. That, that was my goal, was to be a diplomat. Wow. And because I love to travel, I've traveled all over the world. And the way I did it, the way I paid for my school, because I didn't do student loans, um, was I worked. I, I worked during the days and I went to school at night. And I ended up getting a job, you know, painting houses. And then I got a job repairing houses. And then I got a job working for a remodeler. And then I got a job working for a builder. And by the time I finished my third degree, I had eight years experience wearing a nail bag. Wow. And I had an MBA and I had a pretty white collar experience, white collar education to pair that with a very blue collar industry on the residential side. Mm -hmm. You know, back in the 80s, there weren't a lot of sophisticated operators. I mean, I, I remember my first business card, you know, we had printed on their computer generated proposals, right? Like we were like <laughs> really hip, you know, that was like really cool. Yeah. You know, to put, I mean, you actually, that was our marketing computer generated proposals. Right. And, and then when we got the pagers and the pager would go off, that meant that our fax was available at the office supply store. So we'd hop in the truck and we'd drive up to the office supply store and get the fax, you know, cause we couldn't afford a fax at the beginning. We just lost everybody uh, who was born after 1990 oh, right there. Yeah. I, know. I know. I love that. It's, it was, we really thought we were really happening. So yeah, so anyhow, I graduated. I, I love the romance of building the American dream. You know, I love those like commercials that show the sunset and there's the guy walking the top plate at the frame of the house with his nail bag on, you know, and the coyote howling at the distance. I just totally <laughs> bought into all of that. And I love the freedom working for myself afforded me because it enabled me to continue to take the time off that I wanted and to travel. And so that's what I did. And I did it with my brother. And it was only going to last a summer, right? And really? Then, you know, quote, get real jobs. Oh. You know, and 20 years later, we still didn't have a real job. You know, we were still doing this. You had a good um, idea, though, that clearly grabbed a, a foothold pretty immediately. Yeah, it did. It, we, it, it worked out really well. We started out um, just doing renovations. We believed in preserving and reusing the existing. We deliberately stayed away from new construction because we associated new construction with uh, the taking of undeveloped land, hmm. and taking it from a watershed mm -hmm. um, and bringing in utilities and, and bringing in uh, you know, man-made objects into the natural environment. So it was a very philosophical decision of ours. We're, no, we're only going to renovate residential and commercial structures that already exist. We don't want to add more inventory to what we all call today the built environment, right? Mm -hmm. We were out there trying to preserve the natural environment, not, not pour more concrete and pour more streets. And we were happy doing that. We were very good doing that. We were very active in the community, uh, serving on a variety of nonprofit boards. We were very active in the industry association, serving on boards. And then we had a client who came up and he asked us one day if we'd build his home. And, it was a past client we'd worked with for a number of years. And we said, you know, we're not going to, we, that's not who we are. We're all about sustainability and the reuse. And he said, well, this is going to be a lead home. And we said, sorry, they don't, they don't have a lead for homes program. Right. So your listeners who know the U S street building council and the yeah. lead program, they're like, wow, this, this was way back then. <laughs> 
and he said, no, actually, they're opening it this fall for beta tests. They wow. want to enroll a bunch of homes. And long story short, we ultimately built what became the first LEED certified home in Houston, Texas. We were raised in Southern California, got chased out by an earthquake, okay. ended up in Houston, and that's, that's where we started our business. And we built what became the first LEED certified home in Houston and one of the first 100 LEED certified homes in the country. And that uh, really gave us the impetus to start a second company. So we ended up keeping the main company that did the renovations, and then we had a new brand and a new logo for a second company that only built LEED certified homes. We wouldn't build a home unless it was LEED certified. That's great. So you set the bar and said, hey, clients, come to us. Yeah, because we were a custom builder, right, Ian? So we didn't need 10 clients a year, right? We had a market of 4 million people in the greater Houston area, and we just had to find the one that was all stoked about sustainability that wanted to lead home, and, and, and we would build that, yeah. So that, that was kind of how we came to uh, a philosophical piece with being part of new construction. And then ultimately, we were only doing new construction and infill anyhow, so it wasn't out in the prairie taking. Right. Right. And now you're in mostly urban development as well. So it's kind of similar idea where you're taking things that have already been built to some degree, you know, even if it is an empty parking lot, um, you know, and then figuring out how to, how to repurpose that area and doing, doing urban infill. Yeah, exactly. I, I ultimately, I missed California. I wanted a change. I'd always, I'd watched my dad at age 50 do a complete career change and I admired him for it. And I always said it didn't matter what I was doing at 50 and how successful I was, I was gonna get out of it and do something different just for the sake of doing that. And then of course, the closer you get to 50 also you realize, wow, this is, this is a little scarier than it sounded. You know, <laughs> that's easy to say when you're 35, right? Right. Now you're 50 and you're gonna, but I did, I, I did that. I, I left Texas, I moved back to Southern California. Uh, and ultimately, through connections, uh, ended up meeting somebody from Panko Builders. And I tell you, I've, n- I've never been happier or more challenged in my life. My brain just blows up every day doing the commercial side of construction now and just seeing the resources that are available and the, and the difference that you can make. It's really just a, just a pleasure. That's fantastic. And you did, in your, in your answer to that question, you kind of answered the second question already, which was, you know, you said it back in the day, the idea of sustainability really was reuse. It was, let's, you know, let, let's take what we have and, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, which still pretty much applies today, but, but on a, you know, with a different lens perhaps. Um, and, and now, you know, as we were just talking about with, with Pankout, like your, um, new construction actually to some degree ends up being arguably the bigger opportunity for incorporating sustainability strategies today. So it's interesting how that's, that's shifted. I don't know if you have anything else to add there. Right. Well, I love, it's so good to still hear somebody say reuse, reduce and recycle, right? Because it's as relevant today as it was back then. Right. I mean, my mom did it. You know, we would have to come home from school and we would have to bring the baggies back. And the baggies <laughs> didn't have Ziplocs then, right? They weren't that sophisticated. They had the little fold over foldover. Oh, yeah. Them. Yeah. She never said recycle. That's just, she was just thrifty. Yeah. Right. That just, we were just raised to be thrifty. And then somebody called it reuse, reduce, and recycle. But it's still germane today. It's still important today. And 
Um, it's a lot more complicated today than it's ever been. And that's the good news and that's the bad news, right? So back when I was, you know, making a living and living sustainably in Texas, and, and I would look back to my home state of California and see what California was doing in regards to green energy codes. Mm-hmm. I was like, man, they, they just have it so dialed in. That just must be so great to, you know, to live in a tribe of people who speak the same dialect and not have to have these inane arguments about it costs too much up front, right? Right, which is the number one thing that still to this day, even if you, I've talked to folks who've said, you know, I literally showed people the numbers and showed them how they would not only spend less during construction, but also during the operation of the building. and they still didn't want to do it, (laughs) you know, for one reason or another, there's this idea that it's, that there's got to be a catch or that there's a hidden cost that, you know, isn't on the line item or something. I know. I know. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? As I have a sister and a brother-in-law back in Texas and I helped them find a builder and an architect to build their retirement home, you know, in Mm. in the hill country. And I was like, it's gotta be net zero. And they were like, what's net zero? (laughs) <laughs> right. That's where the conversation started. And for 18 months, they kept saying, yeah, but you know, it's getting more expensive. Maybe we should just drop the net zero part. And I'm like, this is not what's driving the cost. Okay. <laughs> it's that three slabs of granite that you picked out for your kitchen island that's driving the cost. It's not the efficient air conditioning unit out back. Right. It's not the solar panels. No. But you just can't get that to click, right? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so luckily we live in California, so we are still having those conversations with folks that at least have, uh, in most cases, heard of net zero. Maybe maybe can't define it, but have at least heard of it before. You're right. You're right. You're right. And you know, um, speaking of net net zero, Ian, I'd love to refer you to the New Buildings Institute. Have you been to their website at all? I it was a while ago, but not recently. No. Oh man, I tell you what. You know whether your listeners are listening to you for ideas on their home or whether you've got a school administrator or people in the commercial construction arena and architect, they've gotten information on net zero for every building type you can imagine. And and they've been incredibly successful with schools in California. Fantastic. You know, getting locales to issue bonds, but making sure that the RFP, the request for proposal, for the new school is going to be net zero. They're they're building them across the state, and and as a taxpayer, that that makes me really happy. Yeah, know, to see well, and, building buildings know, like this. As someone that recently had a, a small child <laughs> or a baby, I guess who is on his way to becoming a small child. Yeah, like that's exciting. I think I think that's one area where you know health is certainly an area. When I'm talking to people, I'm like, okay, where is the in? you know, for, for folks that maybe see the numbers, because you assume that all you have to do is lay out the numbers and somebody's like, oh yeah, great. But as we just talked about, it's not always the case. You, you have to stretch their imagination a little bit. Right. And health is certainly one area where you can get a lot of people involved and you can get a lot of people on board, you know, better air quality, better comfort, you know, um, you know, better productivity. I mean, if you're talking about office environment, you know, right. And things that you can link directly with uh, better health for humans and for the sur- surrounding environment. And those things are great. Um, but I love the idea, you know, that, that for kids, like 
looking to the future, whether, you know, whether they want to admit it or not, you know, parents and grandparents, like they, they think about those things and they may not think they have very much agency over what they can do. And so reframing that in, in the form of, okay, here we are talking about your home. Like you have mm-hmm. every agency in that. It's your decision as to what you, you know. You do. You are the master. Build and, and it's going to affect your kids and it's going to affect your grandkids and it's going to leave a, a, you know, a better uh, trail of sort of sustainability crumbs for the generation to come, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was, uh, I got together with a good friend of mine who I did a lot of cycling with back in Texas and he's since relocated to the Bay area Hmm. and we were out on a picnic a week ago with his wife and his two daughters and we were all just having a picnic, right? Just beautiful day in the Bay. And they were like going, dude, the gas man, like gas is like expensive here. And I'm, and he's like, man, in Texas, you know, you know, how many times have I heard that? Right. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, well, he, like I said, you get what you pay for. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, you don't get the same gas here that you get in Texas. He goes, what do you mean? What's the difference? And I said, the additives that the state of Texas allows refiners to leave in the gasoline is much more noxious, noxious than what's allowed in California, right? We have a higher degree of refined gasoline here. It doesn't have the same pollutants. Those little girls of yours playing over there in the grass aren't going to be subjected to the same contaminants from the air because the gas that we have here, it's a cleaner burning gas than the, than the stuff that you have in Texas. And there's a cost associated with that. So you as a parent have to decide, you know, literally what's the cost of the air you breathe. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of went, mm-hmm, you know, we had a bologna, well, he had a bologna sandwich and I had a salad or something that, that we were playing around with the girls some more. And one of the girls came over and brought me a dandelion. And I said, I love dandelions. And she said, why? And I said, cause they taste so good. And I <laughs> gobbled down two or three of those dandelions and she giggled and ran off. And my friend looks at me and he goes, dude, how could you eat that dandelion? You don't know what's in the grass. And I said, well, I know what's not in the grass cause we're in California. Mm-hmm. There's no herbicides and pesticides in this grass, which is why these, this dandelion tastes so good. Right. Yeah. In Texas, there's no laws regulating that. You can go to a park two hours after they just sprayed it down with the latest herbicides and pesticides. And, you know, they need signs that says, don't feed your friend's friend, you know, dandelions because they're going to get sick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So whether you're talking buildings or whether you're talking homes, I, I love that you say you're the master of this home, right? You can, you're the agency that can put whatever chemicals you want or leave whatever you want out of the house. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, you just brought up something interesting, which is you know, clearly when, when you started your first company and you were working, uh, the greenhouse was what it was called, right? Yeah. That's, that's the second new construction company. So brother strong was our renovation company and the greenhouse was lead only homes. Yeah. So when you were doing that, I mean, like I said, you guys were the ones setting the bar. There was, there was nobody on the municipal level saying, Oh, you have to build a, a cleaner house or you have to, you know, build. It was, it was all, you guys deciding, hey, this is what we want to do, and we want to encourage and inspire other people to find like-minded people who who want to partner with us on right. this. Right. What's what's another sort of switch from back then to now, at least in California and in lots of other states as well. Um, certainly, Illinois, uh, New York. There's some uh, places in the in the South that are uh, that are actually moving in that direction and and mandating. Uh, moving away from gas and um, yep. 
uh, Pacific Northwest, there's some spots as well. So it's not just California, but, you know, California is one of the first states that has actually been mandating some of these higher level, you know, higher code requirements. Um, How do you, let me phrase my question uh, in an appropriate way. Is that helpful for the industry because it drives people forward or is it actually um, a little bit of a handcuff to some degree because then you have people who are just trying to meet that minimum requirement and again, don't aren't really willing to put their imagination further into the future to say, oh, you know, there's actually, we could do twice, we could build to twice this code for the same amount of money um, by being really smart. I don't know if that question makes sense, but. No, it, it does make sense. That, and I, I wish there was just one answer to that, Ian, right? It's, it's, but it's complicated. Yeah. So, you know, what are we talking about when we talk about industry? So if we're talking about residential home building, mm-hmm. then it depends on the industry segment within residential home building. So if you've got custom builders out there, no, this, it's not a burden. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for them to distinguish what they do from their competition, right? Because yeah. everything you do when you're custom is custom. Mm-hmm. When you're a custom builder, it's custom. So I had a client I was teaching at Rice University, the Glasgow School of Continuing Studies on how to design and build your dream green, green, dream green home. Uh, with an architect friend and had a guy who went through the class four months, got done. He sat down with me, want you to build a home for me. But I know you're telling me it's not going to cost more, but I know it is. So I don't want it to be lead. Right. <laughs> he just sat through four months of listening to me week after week. And that's wow. what he said. So we went through, we put the target value design budget together. We put the concept design together. Him and his wife sat there and said, I love this. This is exactly what we wanted. And you met our budget, right? I said, we did. And I smiled and he said, what? And I said, this is a lead silver building. I ran <laughs> the numbers. It's lead silver already. And you know what his question was? You know what he said to me in response? What's that? How much more will it cost to be gold? Right. Hey, there you go. Right. So he was immediately excited about, wow, you, everything you told me is true. I gave you my budget. I gave you my design. You're matching that. And it is lead. It can be lead certified at no additional cost. Right. So in the custom home segment market, it's not a burden. But when you start talking about production homes, yeah, it's a burden. Because, you know, at the, at the end of the day, if it, notwithstanding the current economic environment, um, if you compare home ownership rates here to let's say in Europe, they're a lot higher, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people in Europe live into their thirties or forties before they get out of an apartment. You know, the cost of housing is just so expensive. Yeah. And if I'm thinking about a daughter or a son-in-law or a, a son one day trying to get out of an apartment and getting them into a home and they can't afford it because the cost of building that sustainable home is so high that net zero energy home that's durable, that's going to survive earthquakes and floods um, and be well certified is so high. They can't afford that Delta because this is their starter home. They, they can't spread the cost of that home out over the next 20 or 30 years, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they want to keep moving up. But that first firewall, that first expense is so high Then yeah, then, 
you know, it's tough. I mean, it, it, it's tough. It's a balance. So I think for some general contractors, the regulations that we have in California that are now requiring these single family homes to be net zero energy right? in the short term, yeah, that's, that's going to cause a lot of buyers to have to sit on the sideline. Ultimately, as we all know, the costs of providing those technologies and changing your processes and systems as a builder, working with your trades to become more efficient, it will become second nature and it will be affordable and we'll have, you know, then we'll be, we'll be ramping back up again, right? The, the yeah. cost of providing that service will drop and more people will get back into homes. But right now there's a lot of confusion, a lot of people figuring out and it'll be, it'll be a couple of years before we see those economies. There's a barrier of entry on the front end, but then you know, in the long term, uh, hopefully bringing some of those technologies and, and, methods and uh, uh, benefits of, of living in a net zero home and building one to more people. So sort of cost benefit, a uh, little less on the front side, a little more on the back side, maybe. And yeah. to that end, you know, it also has inspired, there's lots of companies, um, four or five I can think of here in California that because of those um, because of those stringent requirements and, and the need, you know, the codes going up are actually moving toward like prefabric, a prefabricated model, which you could argue is again, like trying to figure out that nexus between cost and sustainability and saying, mm -hmm. okay, well, if we, you know, I'm, I'm curious, what are, what are your thoughts on sort of prefab being somebody who, um, you know, you've probably done it all at this point. Uh, do you have, is it, is it a good thing for the future right. of the industry? Is no, it it's a great thing. I mean, cool. you know, I'm a, I'm an agent for change. So I, I think all change is good, even if it doesn't mean it's pain-free, mm -hmm. but, but change is good for all of us, right? I think that's how we, how we make our muscles, both our, our mind muscles as well as our physical muscles is, is going through change. So no, I, I, I love what's happening in the prefabricated segment of the marketplace. Again, if you're looking at custom home building, then um, most custom home buyers are, aren't pressed for money, right? It's not the bottom end of the market, right? You have to have a certain level of affluence in order to, to get even to the table, if you will. That These are like the back rooms of, in Las Vegas, right? <laughs> you know, you have to have a minimum amount of money to even get in there to play at those tables. So on the custom end of the market, uh, I, I think it's fabulous. It's a lot of fun. You can do some really great sustainable things. At the end of the day, you're not going to reach scale to save any money, mm -hmm. uh, but you're going to be able to create a great story about sustainability and about energy efficiency. And certainly from a design perspective, it just gives you a whole new palette to play with. Mm -hmm. From a production home perspective, uh, now you now you can see more economies of scale, right? Because now you can get a builder that can go in and buy in mass and can buy at scale and can put dozens or dozens of dozens of homes down exactly that are going to be prefabricated. You're not going to get the same element of design enjoyment and liberation, right? It's going to be much more constrained. Yeah. Um, so don't confuse this with a custom home that's prefabricated. Mm -hmm. um, but it is going to enable more people to get into the market and become first-time home buyers because that home builder is going to achieve economies of scale that no custom builder gets. And then when you talk commercial, obviously we're 
Panko has been doing um, prefabricated student housing and hotels now for probably our first project was about six years ago in the Bay Area. Wow. Okay. So that's like a long time, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's like a long time. We've done some pretty substantial projects. And what we're finding is, is that you're not saving money on your hard costs, right? Uh, because the factory built option, while on its face looks like it will save money, the integration at the site costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But where you are saving money is in your schedule. Right. Right. So while the factory's over here producing these units for, for the hotel or for student housing, uh, we're over here at the site, you know, putting in the site utilities and putting in the foundation and getting ready to support the larger superstructure when it gets delivered. That's great. Yeah. So that's and, kind of the trade-off. And obviously that's, you know, in the commercial space, that's, that's where you're or commercial or, or larger scale space. That's where you're going to see, uh, some of these technologies scale most quickly because you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on projects. And so right. uh, a 1% or 2%, um, reduction in, you know, time or cost or whatever is, is pretty significant. Absolutely. Those carrying costs. Yeah. Every month. Yeah. 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 You should. Yeah, not to mention five or schedule. 6%. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or, you um, know, if you, if you, if it enables, you know, Marriott hotel or whoever it is out there to open their doors four months early. Yeah. Bring yeah, revenue exactly. four months earlier. That's a big difference. Even if your hard costs end up being essentially the same, that's a big deal. I had a couple other questions, um, but that makes me think about something that I've just been sort of pouring over, I guess, myself in, in discussing one of the projects that we're working on right now. There are changing zoning requirements in Santa Monica right now. Like we've basically been told by the city that like this one area that we're looking to develop in and that we came up with this uh, you know, pretty specific design for and site analysis and the whole deal. Um, oh yeah, we might be adding, you know, some additional height or some additional, um, and, and it's for good reasons. It's because we need housing in California. So I get it, but it puts us in sort of an awkward position where, you know, we can, at this point, we're no longer pitching our design really to the client. We're kind of just pitching like our intelligence and, and saying, you know, Hey, we came up with this based on these uh, conditions, you know, parameters. So change the parameters and we'll come up with a similarly, uh, <laughs> you know, clever uh, design for whatever those are, but we can't really prove it if we don't know what those are. And so what that's been sort of making me roll around a little bit in my head is this idea of like almost flexible design um, where one could build, let's say, you know, for instance, a five story structure with knowing that maybe during the construction of that, that the parameters could change. And I'm wondering if you guys have had any discussion since you have done everything from airport terminals to, um, you know, schools to, to, uh, for profit development. Um, you know, is that, is that a discussion at all in, in those design charrettes, you know, or people saying, Hey, you know, what if we, uh, build this out in such a way where that floor or half of that building or a certain section of the building could be retrofitted easily to adapt to uh, 
a use that maybe doesn't exist for another 10 or 15 years? Is that, are, are people talking about that at all? Right. Yeah. And you know, they're uh, not in the circles that I travel in. It's gotten so complicated, right? You know, I mean, I guess back when the NFL first started 70 years ago or 100 years ago, whenever that was, you know, players played on both sides of the line, right? Right. You had guys that played offense, then they played defense. You know, you had pitchers that would pitch 120, 130, 140 pitches. Now they pull them at 80. And, you know, now sometimes you got the bullpen starting first. You've got eight different types of pitchers. You know, we're seeing a specialization across the board. Yeah. Whether it's in sports or whether it's in medicine, in, another in, good example. In, uh, medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's the same thing in our, in our craft, right? It's the same thing. You know, you have mechanical engineers and plumbing engineers and electrical engineers and you have seismic engineers and you have your lead consultant, you have your space planner and you have your fit planner. You have your interior designer, you have a lighting consultant. I have an, a, an acoustics consultant, right? And you know, I still haven't even mentioned the architect yet, right? <laughs> yeah, sorry. I could name six more people before yeah, the I project get to the teams like a thousand people. Yeah, I know. It, it is. I mean, I was on a conference call right before this with someone on my project team, and he said, um, "Who? It's that same job on Valencia." Yeah. He said, "Who's the lead consultant?" I was like, "Bryson, dude, there's so many people anymore. I don't know. <laughs> Give me a minute. I got to look it up, right?" Yeah. You know, you're getting on these these planning review calls, and there's ten different consultants. So that that desired design flexibility, it's it has to occur very very early, right? Based on that feedback that you're going to get from the planning department, because the later you go when those changes come, boy, everything's connected to everything, and all the dominoes fall, as you're well aware of, right? That's what you're experiencing right now. Yep. Yeah, it's it, it's it's tough. I, I it's tough. Well, so okay, uh, having worked for you know, both big project teams and then uh, smaller project teams earlier in your career or on certain projects. Um, is there sort of a one size fits all um, approach where you're as a sustainability consultant, let's take you out of a panko for just one second. I know mm -hmm. you were a sustainability consultant for a number of years, sort of in and around the other things you were doing. Right. Um, what was there sort of one thing that you would tell everybody, you know, Hey, this is the lowest hanging fruit, you know, or these are the top five things you can do to make your project sustainable. Or is it, uh, as you're saying, so project specific that there's not really any, any approach that can be applied across the board. Mm. No, Ian, I would say there's um, <clears throat> two very important principles. Doesn't matter if, it's a commercial new ground up. Doesn't matter if it's commercial renovation. <clears throat> Doesn't matter if it's a residential renovation or you're building a custom home. The owner has to the owner has to put together the project team, mm -hmm. and the two co-captains of that team is going to be the architect and the general contractor. Mm -hmm. So I think the owner, the developer, has to find relational synergies amongst those two players so that the three of us can talk to the point we can finish each other's sentences. There is a trust and a collaboration there that is perfect. That, that's the first point. So when I go to my weekly owner architect client meetings, mm -hmm. when we kick those off, I tell my client, the owner, <clears throat> 
on Sunday night when you're at home and you're looking at your schedule for the week and you see we have our OAC meeting, we call them, coming up this week, that needs to be the number one meeting that you look forward to every week. And if it's not, then I'm not doing my job, right? Because <laughs> I want you to look at that calendar and go, oh, God, I love this guy. I love this company. I love the team I've put together. I love the trust that we've built, the care that exists, the sincerity that exists, the work ethic, the respect. I mean, we're striving for perfection in these relationships. So that's the number one thing. doesn't matter what the project is. Owners need to make sure they're being supported because owners, with all due respect, as smart as they are, usually when it comes to construction, they're ignorant because mm -hmm. that's not what they do. They're not an architect. Right. They're not they have preconceived notions of some sort, you know, that may that's not right. be accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So they need an architect they can trust and a builder that they can trust and two people that are working together that aren't playing the blame game. Mm -hmm. And then the second most important element, again, regardless of the project size or type, is that the owner has to take responsibility for pointing that project team in the true north, right? What's the true north of this project? And that can be, I want lead platinum because I want to save the world one building at a time. Or I want lead platinum because I got an ego as big as the plaque and I want it hanging on my office wall. And, and that's okay too, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Or I want to create a legacy building that I can pass on to my children who will have this home one day or who will have this building and inherit this building and they can get rents. Or I want to be the first well, right? The owner has to point the true north, whether it's, whether it's lead, whether it's well certified, whether it's this much per square foot, mm -hmm. right? Whether, whether it's this design, right? Uh, you know, we went, we went to Greece and we saw this home and this is what we want. And what's most important is that my home or the structure incorporates these design elements, right? They, they got to tell us what the goal is. They have to tell us the priority of their goals and us being again, the architect and the general contractor, the team that is now charged with getting us to that mountaintop is defined by that owner. So is that something that you, you have the, the, uh, conversation where it's like, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm super smart. <laughs> We're all super smart. We can do, you know, a lot of really cool things, but it's up to you to, to drive this. I mean, it seems kind of counterintuitive to pitching yourself as a sustainability consultant to come in and say, this is all up to you. Well, the owner, so yes, we do. And direct answer to your question, we do. We say, what are your goals of this project? Cool. And, and then we give them input on that. Right. So when they talk about sustainability, we talk about how they'll get there. We can help define the route that we're going to take. But if we're sitting out here in the valley and there's 10 mountaintops out there, that owner has to tell us which mountaintop is, is his or her goal that they want to get to. And then we'll chart the path that will get us there safely on time uh, and on that budget. But yeah, they, they, they've got to set that true north and we, and we tell them that and we, we put that at the, at the top of our weekly notes, right? That's the header right there. That reminds everybody so we never lose track of where it is the owner wants us to be. That becomes a touchstone throughout throughout the project during pre-construction and construction. Yeah. Well, I love that you uh, kind of brought us full circle. We're, my first question was about thinking beyond the building and we, we talked a lot about buildings, but then at the end we came back to really, it's, you know, it's about the people. It's about the people uh, who are going to be building the building and what, they, what they're thinking, what, what's in their hearts, what's in their heads. Uh, 
and how to how to get everybody on the same page and find that sort of Venn diagram of all the different stakeholder uh, goals. Yeah, yeah, you're you're exactly right, Ian. I mean, that's the, I mean that's why we're talking together today, right? Because it's the people, it's the relationships, it's it, it's just the joy of of working with people where you have trust and collaboration and and you respect each other. That's what makes it so much such a joy to be in this industry, right? And it, and when you're in the sustainability portion of the industry, then to me it kind of gives you even a greater purpose, right? It gives you a greater sense of satisfaction, and then. And I like that. I, I like that, you know, because, you know, we all want clean air and we all want clean air to be here for forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's clear that you enjoy your work because you talk about it, you know, with uh, a great deal of joy and also, you know, enough, <laughs> enough knowledge for a handful of other folks that I've talked to. So thank yeah. you so much for um, spending an hour with me and, uh, you know, helping to inspire hopefully future generations to not just want clean air and clean water, but, you know, come to that realization that we can build cleaner buildings and that'll help all of yeah, us. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's great to see you on the screen, right? If we would have done this two months ago, I don't, I don't know what the venue would have been, but this is certainly <laughs> one of the blessings of where we're at today, right? We get to do a Zoom conference podcast and, you know, I moved here from Santa Monica, so say hello to the beach. I will. I oh, will. There, uh, whatever day they opened it back up, we didn't actually go on the beach, but we said hello. <laughs> okay. Very nice. Very nice, Ian. Well, thank you, Michael. I, I really appreciate it and uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. I, I will. You too. Take care, buddy. All right. Take care, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.